0: Hello and welcome to the Water Cooler, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. My name is Nick Cater and I'm the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Today we're bringing you a candid conversation between two great Australians, former Prime Minister John Howard and the man who served as his deputy for nearly six years, John Anderson. It was conducted in front of a live audience in late 2019, following the Page Research Centre's lecture, which was given. By Mr Howard. and We'll be putting that out in a separate podcast. This conversation covers a remarkable range of topics from the personal chemistry between the two men, the relationship between the National Party and the Liberal Party, which is now nearly 100 years old, and their thoughts on the future direction of this great country. I'm sure you'll agree with me that they have much to contribute to the current debate. Look, it's a tremendous privilege to have you both on the same stage. Let's start at the beginning. You asked the question tonight, John, when you answered the question, John Anderson, when you first became aware of John Howard as a significant figure. John, Mr Howard, perhaps you could answer the opposite question. When did you first become aware of John Anderson and what a significant figure he was?
1: Well, I I first became aware when he was elected as that by-election in Guida. And um, I was then um, a very struggling opposition leader, as I was about to find out in a few months, (laughs) just how struggling. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, And uh, uh, I persuaded the Liberal Party not to run a candidate in the by-election. I mean, we were entitled under the rules because there was a vacancy. Uh, Ralph, my dear Ralph Hunt, wonderful man, had, had given it away, and uh, John got the endorsement, and he ran and won easily as the National Party candidate. And he came in, and I met him, and I thought, you know, what a thoroughly decent man he seemed to be. And and the longer I spent with him, the more I grew in admiration. As I said earlier tonight, I've never met a more decent, honourable person in public life than John Anderson. Simple as that. <laughs>
0: And that opinion, I think, is is widely shared. Um, if you read um, June twenty third, two thousand and five, uh, when John you you announced that you were going to retire, and um, you went on, of course, the two thousand and seven election, but it brought about a quite unprecedented stream of uh, speeches um, in Parliament. Um, on indulgence, I guess, at that stage, before question time, when people from both sides of Parliament got up to, you know, pat you on the back and say what a fine fellow you were. Uh, what are your members of that, the, the, the day you decided you were going to, after, you know, a, a career in politics of, what, 15 years plus and, and uh, uh, almost six years of that as Deputy Prime Minister? What were your memories of that day?
2: Uh, it was chaos and I, looked,
0: <laughs> I have to say
2: um, it was a very emotional day. My family was with me and people said such nice things. Um, and you do get touched by things. Uh, Martin, Martin Ferguson was my opposite number. Uh, and Martin's a very fine guy, you know. Mm. And um, Julia and our four young children then were allowed down on the floor of the house with Jeanette. And I was very touched that Jeanette came down to listen to the nice remarks. And Martin... She likes you. <laughs> <laughs> I like her too, John, but am I allowed to say that about another... Um, anyway, uh, but Martin went over, the tears streaming down his... Because he used to... I don't know whether I should confess this, but in his more critical moments he used to call me a liberal and gumboots. Yes. <laughs> but he went over to Julia, tears streaming down his face and said... I said, uh, uh, said to Julia, gave her a big kiss and said, I'm going to miss the old B. Expletives, <laughs> expletives deleted. Uh, so it was a very long and confusing day. You sort of think, am I doing the right thing? I mean... But I was thinking about this, in case you asked it. I came in just after, the, I'll call it, the Joe for Canberra Madness. Now, the pre-selectors in Guider were insistent on something. And I realise as I look back, Shaped my thinking. They were at me and at me and at me. If we give you a go, will you promise that when you've given it your best, you will go yourself? Don't be a career politician and hang around forever. Now, they were wrong on that point. Experience is everything in politics. You shouldn't be dismissive of people who want to be there for a long time. On the other hand, I can understand that they were against people who were just time-serving, and John and I saw a lot of those, people who didn't know when to go. Um, And I've often wondered, did I get that balance right? But it was ringing in my ears. When you feel you've made your contribution, get up and go. And so that sort of
0: was a big part of it. I guess if I could go to the awkward question here, Mr Howard, that that, that begs the question, Uh, do you think in hindsight that you should have uh, handed over the reins during that term?
1: as I wrote in my book... Um, I would have, um, in the normal course of events... ...if there'd been no pressure in other direction, I, I might well have gone at the end of 2006. But as you know in 2006 there were sort of claims made that I entered into an arrangement. And I mean I didn't. But that's beside the point. The truth is that once that sort of happened I had to declare whether I was going to go or stay. And that's the dynamic of modern politics. And I was under the pressure to say, are you are going to stay or go? Well everybody said I should stay. And there was a majority view in the Liberal Party that I should stay, so I did. Look, would the result have been different in 2007 if I'd have gone? I don't know. Yeah. Um, the evidence is that in other situations, I mean Blair gave way to Brown... ...it didn't save the Labor Party in Britain. Um, I, I just don't really know, and and I think it's stupid to sort of try and say, well, if only this had happened or that had happened. I just don't really know. The truth is that at no stage, while I was leader of the Liberal Party, did a majority of my party want me to go, and that was my assessment. And and in the end, if that assessment was wrong, I'd have been booted out, because one of the immutable laws of politics is that you got the numbers, you use them. <laughs>
0: And and you did that very successfully. Let's go back to um, the start of your prime ministership, Mr. Howard. And and one of the uh, the big issues, one of the thorniest issues you had to deal with earlier, early on in your prime ministership, was Port Arthur, as you referred mm. to tonight. Uh, I, I noticed in your in, in Lazarus Rising uh, you wrote, uh, I made some fascinating discoveries about gun ownership among, <laughs> yeah, among right. my ministerial right. colleagues. Right. Yeah. Hey. That most mild mannered and law abiding deputy leader <laughs> of the National Party, John Anderson, had a yeah. veritable arsenal. <laughs> yeah. Is that true, John? And did you support the gun laws? Uh, yeah,
2: well... Um, <clears throat> I'd been out, as you had to do as a shadow, as the Minister for Primary Industries and Energy, uh, at an upset beef producers' meeting. And I'd flown home, and the wildest night I've ever been on a light plane in got in at about two o'clock, crawled into bed, utterly done, and the phone rings at about 10 to 7. And it's the Prime Minister (laughs) saying, "I think we'll have to have a set of gun laws." (laughs) And he said, um, "I said yes, Prime Minister." (laughs) (laughs) He said, "I've been talking to Tim Fisher, and he tells me." And John, you know, I could tell, I can always tell when you're reading because you do it so rarely. But you were reading a bit of paper. He tells me he has a hesitation, a a, a .22 rimfire. (laughs) That's the gun of that he needs on his farm. What sort of gun do you need on your farm? Because you're going to have, your job is to persuade me of what farmers need and what they don't need. And, you know, I mean, I got in at 2 o'clock and it's still only 10 to 7 and I'm thinking, how do I tell the Prime Minister I don't know how many firearms I've got? <laughs> So there's a long pause and John says, are you still there? I said, yes, Prime Minister. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, tr- I said, I'm trying to count them up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd grown up with a father who'd been, a, you know, a, an anti-tanker, a tank gunner during the war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, part of... Dad was an unbelievably keen and gifted sportsman, extraordinarily so. And I I was not as gifted. But every afternoon we either went um, target shooting, uh, we boxed or we played cricket. Every afternoon. And I'd grown up with that and I'd shot for school, I'd shot for Sydney University. Uh, Dad's brothers had given me their cast-off 303s. I mean, it was quite ridiculous, I have to say. (laughs) Um, You you lightened the load enormously, John, I have to say. But uh, it took a little while to get there. And when I said, I think I've got 13, it was the only time I think I've ever seen you nearly lose it with amazement. (laughs) Um, I don't have many more. My son Nick has them now. (laughs) Under those terrible licensing agreements that you insisted on. (laughs)
0: Look, I, I think you know we've touched on one of them. But, uh, you know,
2: and what's more, I've got to say to the to the credit of the New South Wales Police, every so often they audit it and they do it very professionally and very well. And I don't want to argue with what happens. You know, it's not much fun now getting a license; don't enjoy it much having it renewed. But you know, it was the case made. Yes, it was. Was it the right thing to do? Yes, it was. Uh, is it working as it was intended to work? Well, of course, there'll always be people who do the wrong thing, but generally speaking, yes, it is. And can I say one for the coppers? They do come and audit us, and they do it appropriately and well and thoroughly.
0: Thank you. I, I, I'm pleased about that because I was... now, you... now
2: ask my son how many he has.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was beginning to wonder whether we should have had metal detectors at the door, but anyway... Uh, um... But, look, I mean, Port Arthur was just just the start of it. I mean, in an era where we... You know, there's a sort of rhetorical inflation, like everything now is a crisis, right? You know, you've got a you know, crisis this. But you guys actually uh, governed through some serious crises. I mean, there was the Port Arthur massacre, of course, mm-hmm. but then, of course, you know, much else occurred beyond that. You, you know, when... I can't help reflecting on the fact that when... 9-11 occurred when those two planes uh, went into the towers in New York. You were actually acting Prime Minister, weren't you, John? And and John Howard, you were overseas in the US, quite close to it. Uh, and then later on there was the Bali attack. Both of you went over there and you went to you know, moving ceremonies uh, that occurred. There was uh, East Timor. Uh, do, do, how do those play out, you know, in, in power? do that? Do they help bond you together in some way?
1: Oh, I, I, I think the, 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 the other
0: event that is often overlooked
1: during that period was the Asian Absolutely. financial crisis. Absolutely. Very significant event because it was specific to our region and it was a, the first example of Australia's international economic muscle because we had enough strength... We were able to help Thailand, the Philippines and Indonesia with direct assistance over and above the IMF. We were able to persuade the International Monetary Fund and the American Treasury that they were being too hard on Indonesia and um, that was a a hugely um, significant development because it, it was Australia exercising and we were saying to the region... We're strong enough to help you. And um, and we had a big impact. And I remember talking to Peter Costello about this and, and, and he, about eight or nine years later I ran into Larry Summers who'd been the American Treasury Secretary and he still remembers that I you forced us to you know, weaken our attitude towards Indonesia. And it was a very big thing in Asia that because Indonesia suffered very severely and it, I think it helped... Um, enormously Australia's credentials in that part of the world.
2: I, I just agree with that so strongly. I was going to say make the very same point. People have forgotten how bad that was. i still got a copy of the Canberra Times. Does anybody remember the Canberra Times? I think it's sunk without trace. Mm. Probably the best That's thing it could happen. It deserved to. Ha- yeah, deserve to. <laughs> but they did they ran one brilliant headline. It was Anderson calls for calm <laughs> in, the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of the Asian <laughs> crisis. And the, the two points I'd make, one is we were right on Indonesia, and it helped that country move towards a more democratic and stable system. Yeah. They got their debt, uh, GDP, debt, uh, public sector debt to GDP from 90% down to about 15 mm. And we helped them do that. And that's in our interest, just as it's in theirs. But more than that, we were mature enough, John, I think I, think I can say this, as a government not to panic here. Oh. And the result of that was that markets took their place... You see, I mean, gnats aren't meant to talk like this. But markets took their place. We didn't do stupid things trying to manipulate the currency and what have you, and it was of unbelievable value to our exporters and our farmers that we were able to manage our way through that period. Um, I had ABED do some work at the time, and it showed that farmers and exporters benefited more from the depreciation in the dollar because we didn't try and intervene than they did from the lower interest rates. It's a staggering thing. But there are real rewards for sound economic management and we forget it at our peril.
1: Can I say we had a very sensible, very good Reserve Bank governor at the time, Ian McFarlane, who was, in my opinion... ..the best economic advisor our government had.
0: Anyway, that's just as a side. You mentioned, you know, during your remarks earlier, Mr Howard, on the fact that, you know, there wasn't really, you know, a, a cigarette paper of difference between you and Mr Anderson and, and indeed Tim Fisher on the question of economics. Uh, you, you were pretty much lockstep on, on that, that case... And that's not um, that's not common in the history of the of the partnership between the liberals and the Nationals, the Liberal and the Country Party. There were many times.
1: Well, I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, I think um, Fraser and Anthony had similar views. They were different from perhaps the views that I, John, and I may have had, but they had similar views because they were, we are all creatures of our periods, and 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 and. and Malcolm and Doug were the legatees of that long period after World War II when intervention seemed to work. And that all changed in the early 70s when you had the oil shock and you had the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement of fixed exchange rates and all that happened and people reacted to it differently. But the the lockstep character was similar then but you were in, they were in lockstep on sort of a different approach. Um, uh, I mean there were some differences between Holton and McEwen over the, the exchange rate because that was in an era when you had the fixed exchange rate and you could have arguments as to whether it should be this level or that level and, and in, the, in the late 60s there were a few of those, but generally speaking they had fairly similar views on economic policy, but they were profoundly more interventionist because that was what everybody thought worked, and it did. I mean, you look at the 50s and 60s. You, when, when Whitlam defeated McMahon in 1972, unemployment in Australia was 1.5%. There's no better measurement of successful economic policy than the number of people out of
2: work. People do, people do forget that. But I take John's point entirely. We're all products of our time. And I actually have a lot of sympathy for young people today. A lot of young people here tonight. And Deloitte did a major study on how young Australians feel about their future and found 92% of young Australians do not feel they have the job and life opportunities that their parents had. And the main reason behind that, of course, is the unaffordability of housing. And some doom and gloom about some of the big external threats, if you like, external to Australia, that seem to confront us now. But the only answer to that can be to see the challenges as something to be grappled with, not overcome by. And so going through... uh, I touched on it in my earlier remarks... Going through school, sort of feeling that I was going to enter a workplace in a country that was moribund, unlike Britain was losing its way, and you could see Asia starting to rise and the warnings of the Lee Kwon news, it crystallises the mind and you think, well, can I make a difference? Uh, and I make no apologies for saying that um, it, what the new treasurer seemed to be saying to me even though I'll be frank about this, I was an admirer of Doug Anthony's and I joined the party because of his courage. I saw him standing up to farmers on policy issues they didn't like. It was the treasurer of that area that convinced me we could break free. And then you had the National Farmers Federation uh, that was John Howard, by the way. Um, but then you had the National Farmers' Federation, the New South Wales Farmers' Federation. I see Mitch Hook here. You remember the driving papers and research that was being done on those days on get the big stuff right, that's the best thing you can do for rural Australia. And I entered the party room at a time when these debates were in full flight. Is David Brownhill still here? Is David? David David was an unbelievable champion for good policy. Um And it was incredibly invigorating to come into that place as a 31-year-old or whatever and find a very high-quality debate going on. Some of you may have stumbled across a website that I sort of host. And, you know, our theme is you cannot get good public policy out of a bad public debate. We need to argue not less but more. We just need to do it in a more civil way so that we get to the best answers.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I thoroughly endorse, uh, you know, for anybody who hasn't gone to John Anderson's website and seen the fantastic interviews, very thoughtful interviews, with some of the great uh, thinkers of the centre-right today, people like Jordan Peterson, Neil Ferguson, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, please do it. Uh, and one of the things you, you keep coming... Whenever you talk to these people, of course, you inevitably keep coming back to this horrible, horrible... Uh, modern uh, idea of identity politics, but it seems to me that what what you did, what you both did, was the very opposite of that. And, and in in your eulogy—not wasn't a eulogy, but in your in your <laughs> good, goodbye John speech, I should say, on the uh, June the twenty third, June the twenty third, two thousand and five, when you you stood up in Parliament to to um, pay tribute to the retiring. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, you said uh, he cares about country people, but he understands that we are, above all, Australians. It's a sense that what was in Australia's interest was in everybody's interest, including the farmers.
1: Well, I mean, that is
0: one of those self-evident statements. At the end of the day,
1: we share in common our Australianism and our devotion to this country... And our profound uh, hope that it will get stronger and better. And um, I always thought that John epitomised um, somebody who stood for the for the decent heart of bush Australia. And that's you know that's something was somebody who, like myself who grew up in the suburbs of Sydney. My my dad was a small businessman and everything. And I'm I sort of just epitomise I suppose. Suburban orderiness in Australia, um, I always thought that the bush was an integral part of what we were, and if you ever lost it, we would no longer be what we wanted to be as Australians. And John seemed to me to epitomize that, and a lot of others who did as well. but um i I saw more of him than I did of the others so I naturally thought of it, but it it's it, I mean at the end of the day, The most important thing you do in politics is to stand up for your values and uh, their values of what your country stands for, what individuals have responsibility to do, what political parties represent. And I admired in John as I did in many of my colleagues and I admired in Alexander Downer and Peter Costello and others and Tim Fisher that they stood for certain things and they were prepared to keep to those commitments no matter what the political vic- vicissitudes of the time were. And that is what matters, and and
2: uh, more than anything else. I think the two things I'd say there was that uh, I was deeply conscious, I, went, I think probably everyone in this room was, that John sought to appeal all the time, I think the sort of form of words you use, you've just touched on them then again, that, that, that we have more in common than the things that divide us. Uh, and the other thing about John was that he argued his ground so that when you disagreed with him, you, at least you knew where he stood. That's really important to people. Listen, I wish I could put my hands on it again, but i was shown some really interesting research about three years ago which suggested that the Australian people think the last time we had a proper, decent debate that was about the interest of the people, not the people looking for office, was, in fact, the GST. Mm. And that we haven't had a full-blooded debate since then. But you touch on identity politics, and I just can't help running this because it frightens the living daylights out of me. You stop and think, I was asked for my sins to talk to a summer school in Oxford this year on the impact of identity politics on our parliament. And since they'd offered to pay for the airfare, I said yes. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, what on earth am I going to do with this? How do you unpack it? What is it? And I think maybe the simplest way I could explain it, you will have all heard those famous words of Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what your country, what you can do for your country. We, that identity politics compl- turns it on its head completely. So instead of an appeal to citizenship and to your fellow Americans, stroke Australians, whatever, we stroke one another's grievances and say we are owed. What is my country going to do to fix me? Identity politics has as its objectives the setting up of a sort of victimhood, grievance, um, even empathy culture... It's profoundly, I hate to say this, I would have rolled my eyes and said, oh, stop that conspiracy stuff a few years ago. But it is profoundly neo-Marxist or cultural Marxist. There's no getting away from it. <laughs> you know, if there are two things I'd say to this audience tonight, we need to wake up to something the, the left doesn't want us to wake up to. They have organised brilliantly. And if we're to save our culture, we need to organise better now. Which is partly why Page and Richmond, uh, Page and <laughs> Menzies are keen to do what we do. But we need to be hard-nosed and realistic about this. The, the neo-culturalists or Marxists have not hidden their tracks. They've been very open about it. You had the Frankfurt School in the 1920s in Germany. You had Gramsci um, in the 1930s, jailed by Mussolini when they fell out, but his writing smuggled out. They fed into that whole... I'm a product of the 60s, I suppose, but that um, free love, anti-authoritarian sort of Vietnam era into academia, and the rest is history. And it is stripped out. It's turned us... We are in grave danger of becoming a cut flower society where we sit in a vase, pretty-looking flowers, but we're in a vase. We're no longer attached to the stems that grew us and which provide nutrients we need to do something about it very fast because every hot wind that blows, the flowers wilt a bit more and recover a bit less. Every cold wind that blows, the flowers wilt a bit more and recover even less.
3: Thanks for joining us for this Water cooler conversation from the Menzies Research Centre, a not-for-profit think tank supporting freedom, enterprise and opportunity. If you'd like to be a part of our mission and support our great free content, please subscribe at menziesrc.org. You'll be able to enjoy many benefits exclusive to subscribers, including discounts on books, free copies of research reports, and invitations to subscriber-only events. Email us your feedback at info at menziesrc.org. And don't forget to give us five stars on your podcast provider. Thanks so much for listening. And now, back to the water cooler.
0: Um, Your your comments about Marxism lead me on to my next topic. Um, uh, uh, And and one of the things I'd say is that many of the big issues that you dealt with uh, seem to be coming back with a vengeance, the drought, water, which we'll perhaps touch on in a minute. Uh, But China too. I I think um, you, uh, John Anderson, managed to upset China a little bit uh, in the early days of the Howard government by, by having the temerity to travel to Taiwan. It, w- it wasn't easy, was it, Mr Howard, your relationship with China in those early days or perhaps any time?
1: No, well, we got off to a
0: terrible start with China. Um, we had arguments
1: over who could go to Taiwan and under what circumstances. Um, we had the Taiwan Straits dispute where we naturally sided with the Americans We had an argument, um, we had a program called the DIFF program, which was something that we eliminated that hurt Chinese in some ways. It was for a budget measure. Anyway, it was all pretty terrible. And um, so much so that when we had the APEC meeting in Manila in 96, the first APEC meeting I went to as Prime Minister, I requested and had a, a lengthy full-blown meeting with the then-Chinese President Jiang Zemin. And we really reset the relationship and we agreed that what we should do was focus on the things that we could agree on. We will never agree with China on a whole lot of things. China is a Communist Party dictatorship which is far more authoritarian now than it was when I was Prime Minister. Xi Jinping is far more dictatorial than either of his predecessors, far more. And that is a reality. I mean, I hear these lectures from, I think one of them came from my immediate predecessor as Prime Minister about what we should do in relation to China. What we should do is understand that China is now a more tightly regulated, controlled Communist Party dictatorship. As simple as that. Now, that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't get on with them. China is our best customer and, and, and we, should, um, igno- we should avoid gratuitous attacks. But equally, we shouldn't pretend our, that we have some kind of special, you know, euphoric relationship. We don't. Now, there are a lot of things we have in common with China. We have trade. We have 1.2 million Australian citizens of Chinese ethnicity... Uh, Mandarin and Cantonese together are the most widely spoken foreign languages in Australia. Far more mean, 10, 15 years ago it was Greek, now it's Chinese. Now, they are realities. There are more Chinese visitors to Australia now than there are New Zealand visitors now. And we have a large student population from China. Now, these are facts of life and we've got to recognise them. We shouldn't you know, do injury to them, but equally... When, when, when I hear all this debate about China, nobody allows for the fact that China has become more aggressive, more dictatorial, and, and, and there's no doubt that the Chinese government is trying to use, through its agencies, large Chinese organisations in Australia, particularly at universities. There's no doubt about that. And, and it, nobody in this room should pretend otherwise. We should be very clear-headed. So you say we got off to a bad start with China. Yes, but we didn't. ...end up with a bad relationship. You may remember that in 2003... first day George Bush addressed a joint sitting of Parliament. The second day Hu Jintao at, um, um, addressed a joint sitting of Parliament. But let me... ...perhaps into a, I don't know whether it's a secret or not. I, I wrote about it in my book, so perhaps it's not a secret. But... Um, <laughs> um, you may remember that there was a, a, a senator, a Green called Brown, uh, uh, who interjected on George Bush. And and George Bush brilliantly responded and said, ain't democracy grand or something like that. And, and as you'd expect somebody who actually believes in free speech to do. Now, after that happened, the Chinese came round to my office and said, we, we can't allow that to happen on our president because he was going to speak the next day. And, and, and we said to him, well, I'm sorry. Um, and they, what they really wanted us to do was to make sure Brown wasn't there. <laughs> you know, would disappear him. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and we said, well, we can't do that. He's, ent- he's entitled to be there. He was elected. And they said, Oh, this is very serious. <laughs> and I said, We said, Well, look, but I mean, I knew in the end there was no way they were going to pass up the the, the theater and the and the significance. Because I was giving to Hu Jintao the same courtesy that we'd given to George Bush. And in the end, he went ahead with the with the speech, and there was no, you know, no interjection. The only sort of nuance in all of it was that part of the deal and 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 something that George Bush had accepted was that we after the speech we offered Bush a you know a, a full dinner in in the great hall where we naturally invited all the members of parliament the Chinese said well look we'd be very happy to sort of accept that but we'd like to have it at a at an adjacent hotel which meant of course they had some more we didn't have to. they had a bit more influence on who was invited I didn't care about that and, and and there were a lot of people who were able to come along and, and and it was a lovely evening. But the point is that in the end um, that demonstrated to me in a very vivid way the difference in our systems. I mean, Bush was able to handle uh, the interjection. Hu Jintao didn't... Well, the Chinese didn't want it to happen and in the end it didn't happen but fact is that in the end they wanted to have the interaction with us. They knew it was a big thing that they were given the same treatment as the President of the United States. Now, that demonstrated to me that it's possible for Australia to have good relations with both countries. We'll always be closer to the Americans because we believe in the same things, always. And that – nothing will ever – and, frankly, we shouldn't pretend otherwise. I mean, you hear all this mealy-mouthed language about this, that and the other. Look, at the end of the day, America is a great democracy. We're a great democracy. China is a Communist Party dictatorship. Right. We accept that, but let's see what we can do in common with the Chinese. And I think if we adopt that pragmatic approach, we can get through the current sort of difficulties that exist. And But don't imagine that China is... We
2: <laughs> can. John. I I really do believe uh, that John Howard and Alexander Downer, and I think Tim Fisher deserves a lot of credit too, uh, positioned us extraordinarily well not just in the region but globally and it would be a terrible shame to squander that and uh, that the circumstances have become very much more difficult. I just have to say to you, you have to look like you believe in yourself. Mm. And it's worth – I love history. Uh, as you two do too. Look, I, I can't help making this point. A young nation of four and a half million people in 1905, 1906, looked around the world and said it looks very unstable. And on a bipartisan basis, they ordered from Britain against the wishes of the Admiralty, a tier two Navy complete with submarines. And it sailed through Sydney Harbour five years later in time for Australia to secure the Southwest Pacific for the first world, during the First World War. Um, I just put on the records that we decided on a bipartisan basis in 1905... uh, ..sorry, 2009, that we needed 12 new state-of-the-art submarines. Uh, The time gap between that decision in 2009 and 2034... ..when we're told the first one might arrive is 25 years... Um, assuming that they're the right submarines and that they're reliable and um, certain other things, that will be 25 years from the decision being made to the first one being delivered, which is the same time as elapsed between the beginning of the First World War and the end of the Second World War.
1: <laughs> what are you trying
2: to say, John? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be the first time, John, that you've ever wondered what I was trying to say. <laughs> but I have to say, you were kind enough to say that I, I, I sort of, um, I hope, tried to get on with people in the parliament. You mentioned Bob Brown. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: I, I, was, um, I was asked uh, by uh, somebody out at Bar Calden on the Wombat Trail whether I thought that Bob Brown was a watermelon. Was what? Green. what? a watermelon, green on the outside and red on the inside. Mm. And I said, no, I think more of an avocado, really, shiny and green on the outside, mushy on the inside with a big brown nut in the middle. And I, I have to tell you, I, that was the end of a good relationship with Bob Brown.
0: <laughs> uh, that's, that's interesting, John, because I, I was looking back at that series of uh, sort of tributes to you in Parliament, and uh, Tony Abbott, who's... No, rarely wrong on anything, said uh, like the member for Gippsland. I have almost never heard an unkind word said from the member for for uh, he, he obviously thought he, he, he said hadn't that, spoken to. Uh, oh, Brown, no, but he, he he said the member for the member for Gwydia and the deputy prime minister seem misplaced amongst the egos and aggression of politics. Um, that's a tribute from one. Um, uh, Member who has subsequently become Prime Minister. I want to touch on a tribute from somebody else because this leads on to a question which I've been working up to and I think we should be talking more about, and that is the influence of faith in politics. Uh, Kevin Rudd said, uh, If you know John Anderson, plainly his understanding of his faith drives many of his beliefs and actions in his political life. So I say we don't talk about this very often in public, but I wonder if I get the two of you to reflect on the influence of your faith on your political life?
1: Well, I'm quite happy. Look, I I, um, I think it's played a, a, a significant role in my life. I was um, raised um, and grew up in the Methodist tradition. I still sort of regard myself as a continuing Methodist. I know there aren't any, but... Uh, <laughs> It was the Presbyterians who sort of went for these conditions. But I I married a well-tutored Anglican, and um, so I I attend an Anglican church now, and um, I'm I'm attracted to the the sort of... um, the, the, The broadness of the Anglican faith is one of its strengths. It's one of its challenges, but I think... Faith is very important. I, I I would like to believe that it has influenced many of the decisions I've taken. I always tried when I was Prime Minister to make sure that the influence of the Christian church, which I believe overwhelmingly has been beneficial for Australia, played a role in my decisions and it was particularly related to the decisions that I took in respect of ...supporting faith-based schools. Attitudes I personally took on issues of conscience. And I had a very simple view that when it came to things like abortion... ...and same-sex marriage and stem cell research and RU486 and everything... ...they were conscience issues and you had a free vote. Whether you were Labor or Liberal or National, you had a free vote. and. Uh, I think if you look at my own voting record, I, was, uh, I had a reasonably conservative position on those. Um, I do worry that there is a militancy about atheism and anti-religion in Australia at the present time that didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago. There's a desire to pare back the influence of the Christian religion, indeed all faiths, uh, and that's something that disturbs me. Uh, I don't claim any virtue as a result of my own faith, but um, I hope that it it did inform what I did and uh, what I continue to do in public life.
2: Yeah, Thanks for the question. Plainly, I'm identified in the public mind as... Somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am. I didn't. I came from a very, very, very nominal Presbyterian home. Um, is there somebody down there asking for money? That's that's why I was a valuable member of the Razor Gang. I hate spending money, even if it's other people's. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know whether I was valuable, but um, I, but to start where John finished. You know, the idea of I think I think one of the tr- things that troubled me was that I might through my own inadequacies and failings, uh, bear false witness or bad witness to the things I believed. Um, But for me it certainly was massively influential in that... ..for me it's the explanation for the problem of good and evil and a politician needs an understanding of good and evil. An incredible line of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's that if only it was so simple that... uh, the problem of good and evil, there are evil people and good people. If you got rid of all the evil people, then everything would be good. But he goes on to say the problem is it doesn't work like that because the dividing line between good and evil crosses every human heart. We all make mistakes. We all do the wrong thing. We're all capable of picking up our position. One of the conversations I did recently was with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and he says one of the great prices we are paying in the West for washing out our Judeo-Christian influence is that we no longer forgive. We don't have the concept of forgiveness and understanding based on respect for our neighbour and on self-awareness of our own weaknesses. We've washed it out. And I said, what happens when forgiveness is gone? And he said, well, you've got to hope you can forget. But he said, the trouble is social media means that's not open to you. <laughs> so we're in trouble. Um, but I think the thing that... I mean, I really did. I always worried enormously, Julian knows this is true, that I would trip up and reveal myself to be a fraud. Perhaps if I was really honest, I'd say the fraud I am, you know, because I'm very aware of my own clay feet. But I'd want to turn to to the positive and say uh, Menzies is named for Sir Robert Menzies. He said in the 1940s that democracy is not so much a machine as a spirit in which we recognise that no matter our station in life, our standing, our wealth, whatever, uh, the Christian conception is that every soul is of equal value in the eyes of heaven. In other words, disagreement is no reason to cancel another human being. And the washing of that out of the system is unbelievably dangerous to democracy. And my challenge to the aggressive secular humanists, the atheists that are out there is how on earth in an age when we disagree very deeply uh, on much are we ever going to find the civility, given that you've scrubbed God out of the equation and any higher view of man with it, the civility we need to find our way forward when we disagree. And I put it to you that the deeper the disagreement, And this is something I noticed in John Howard, and it's one of the things I hugely respect about him. In fact, the deeper we disagree, the greater the need for a tough-minded virtue called civility. We think civility is holding your knife and fork properly and saying please and thank you to uh, those who look after us. In fact, where civility really comes into play is when you profoundly disagree with another human being but you choose to argue the issues, not attack the person. If we do not reverse this in our culture, we are finished. We will eat ourselves
0: out from within. Gentlemen, uh, uh, our time's coming to a close. I want to thank you both... um, on behalf of Christian and I, um, that having spent so long in office contributing to uh, the progress of this nation, uh, you are now spending time out of office uh, in uh, as thought leaders, uh, really, uh, you're helping us understand this country better and to encourage us to go forward. Uh, and, and thank you both for the time that you've been prepared to give Myself or Christian, whenever we want to run ideas past, or think about things, or come on a forum like this, it's, it's tremendously important. And I think one of the the great, uh, most valuable things we have in this country is is people like yourselves who have this great sense of public duty. So thank you both. Thanks to Mr. Howard and Mr. Anderson for giving up their time for that conversation and to our friends at the Page Research Centre, the National Party's equivalent of the Menzies Research Centre, who helped make that event possible. If you want us to keep producing this great free content, then please help us by visiting our website and donating to the Menzies Research Centre or becoming a subscriber. Just go to menziesrc.org. That's menziesrc.org. And you can also keep up to date with everything we're doing this year. Thank you very much for listening to the Watercaller podcast and we'll be back soon with another great conversation.
3: Thanks for joining us for this Watercaller conversation from the Menzies Research Centre, a not-for-profit think tank supporting freedom, enterprise and opportunity. If you'd like to be a part of our mission and support our great free content, please subscribe at menziesrc.org. You'll be able to enjoy many benefits exclusive to subscribers, including discounts on books, free copies of research reports and invitations to subscriber-only events. Email us your feedback at info at and don't forget to give us five stars on your podcast provider.